The scripture text for today, the scripture reading text, is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 to 49. The sermon text will be in Mark 1, but the scripture reading for today is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 to 49. This is the word of the Lord. But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. The glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthy, earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, for today's sermon text. Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, but I will begin reading from the beginning of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared 
baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, Immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us now pray his blessing upon its preaching. Most gracious Heavenly Father, this is your word, inspired by your own Holy Spirit. We are your people, born again by that selfsame Spirit. You have made your Holy Spirit to dwell within us as temples. We ask, O Lord, now that you would illumine our hearts and minds to understand, to apply, and to heed your word. And we pray this in Christ's name, the life-giving spirit. Amen. Congregation, the evangelist reveals something in this passage, several things, truths that are very significant for us about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark reveals in this temptation event that we are to deal with today, he deals with it as a, a combat, a meeting of two foes in the desert. But wrapped up in this combat is a divine test. Our Lord Jesus Christ meets with Satan and locks with him in mortal combat as he undergoes a trial. But the Lord Jesus Christ is also in this text revealed to be the true Israel. And if those things were not enough to spark our interest in this hostile encounter between our king and the prince of darkness, Jesus is also revealed here once again by Mark in this chapter, to be God himself. The outcome of this contest is therefore sure, and the fate of the evil one, that's not in question. His fate is sealed. But brothers and sisters, that fact, the certainty of the outcome of this encounter, will introduce a question, a question for us to examine in a little detail. And the question is, could Jesus have sinned here? Could he have failed in this temptation and this trial? 
I've divided today's sermon into two parts. The first part I have entitled, Trial in the Wilderness. The second part I have named, With the Wild Beasts. So part one, Trial in the Wilderness. This scene opens up for us immediately, even abruptly, with an act of war. The wilderness, the trackless wastes of the desert, you see, that was the Jewish conception. It was understood by the Jews, the wilderness, to be, among other things, the special domain of the evil one. Mark tells us that immediately after the baptism and commissioning of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Jordan, that the Holy Spirit cast him into the wilderness. And that is the word in Greek. It means to throw, or to cast, or to cast out. And Mark typically uses this word for the casting out of demons. I direct your attention to verse 34. The Spirit of God then hastens to cast our Lord like a spear into the heart of Satan's realm to hit the devil where he lives. The kingdom of God has therefore opened hostilities against the kingdom of Satan. The Lord Jesus Christ, we are told by the Apostle John in his first epistle, chapter 3 and verse 8, Jesus was sent into the world for this purpose. He writes, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And that unstoppable divine campaign began here, in the wilderness, in the devil's own realm. This moment is, in fact, how God begins to perform his ancient promise, his first promise, at Genesis 3.15, what we call the protevangelium. You see, the promised seed of the woman has arrived. Prepared for this encounter by his endowment with power by the Holy Spirit at the Jordan. But a question could and should arise for us sooner or later when we begin to think about that. Could Jesus Christ sin? Could God the Son incarnate have sinned at this temptation? I'll have a shorter answer and then a little bit of a longer answer. And the short answer to that question is no. Why? God cannot sin. And Jesus is God. Therefore, Jesus could not sin. He could not have failed in this temptation. Although that is the short answer, one can see how that answer might not be so obvious once other biblical truths about Jesus' person and his work are brought into view. You see, although Jesus was God, he was also a human after his incarnation. So the question becomes complicated right off. Moreover, Jesus was not only a man as well as God after his incarnation, He is also a man who is likened in Scripture to Adam. And as we know, Adam underwent a trial. He underwent a probation, a temptation at the hands of Satan too. And Adam could either have failed or or succeeded in his trial and test. 
So one who knows all of this from Scripture might be led to conclude that Jesus too, the second Adam, could likewise fail as well as triumph while under temptation. But at this point we must remember not how Christ is similar to Adam, but how he is in fact very different from Adam. While Adam was purely and solely human, the Lord Jesus Christ is not. Our Lord, when he was incarnated, added a human nature to himself. But his person already had a divine nature. The second person of our triune God, God the Son, is a person in his own right. But that person, of course, has and always has had, and always will have, a divine nature. Hopefully you're following up to that point. Now at the Incarnation, this divine person added a human nature to his person. So that this divine person now no longer had only one nature, a divine nature. He also had, and always will have, a human nature now as well. Now this human nature he added to his person was not corrupted by sin. And in this sense, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, was a lot like Adam before he fell, back during his temptation in the garden. But as you must also appreciate, he is also very different from Adam too. His human nature, unlike Adam's, was and is united to a divine person. And God cannot sin. Now you might think to respond, well, couldn't Jesus' human nature have sinned? Well, indeed, his human nature might have sinned if mere natures could commit sin. But natures do not commit sin. People do. People, persons, sin and do not sin. Not their natures. Even if one's nature fallen nature would prompt the person to sin. The person of Jesus Christ could not sin because his person was and is divine. Even after the incarnation, he was still a divine person, and God cannot sin. Just remember that Jesus could not have sinned here because only persons commit sin, and his person is divine and incorruptible. But I'd like us to move on now to consider another natural question that could arise here in light of everything we've discussed. That possible question would be, why was he made subject to this temptation? If Jesus could not have fallen here, why did he bother with this exercise in the desert at all? There are two reasons that I would like us to consider as to why Jesus was tempted by the devil and proved by God here in the desert. The first involves Jesus' role as the second Adam, but also his role as the true Israel. The second reason he was tempted and tested here was to communicate things to us that we need to know as his disciples. So first we're going to discuss Jesus as the second Adam and Jesus as the true Israel. 
Let's begin by considering what the word tempt means. In the Bible, this word usually means to make a trial of a thing, to test or to prove a thing or a person. But it also implies here, especially in light of the more fulsome accounts of his encounter with Satan in the parallel accounts of Matthew and Luke, that the devil was trying specifically to tempt Jesus away from his mission so soon after undertaking it at the Jordan. So here the term tempt clearly means both. This temptation was both an enticement to sin or disobedience and a test or a trial. This was a temptation to sin on Satan's part and a trial or test or approving of Jesus on God the Father's part. In other words, God used Satan's attempt to entice Jesus to sin to try or prove Jesus. God doesn't tempt anyone to sin. Satan does that. But God does test or try or prove his servants at times. Why should the Father test or prove Jesus? Well, there is a pattern of God's dealings with mankind and his people to which this test or trial of Jesus conforms. You see, God had created mankind for worship, for service, and for loyal fellowship. And Adam, the firstborn of the old creation, was supposed to serve God as prophet, priest, and king. But Adam failed. He fell. And when he did, he dragged all those he represented into his fall with him. God, however, did not give up on the human race. But through his gracious call upon the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their descendants, the nation of Israel, God ordained these same three offices of prophet, priest, and king within his people to serve, to worship, and to glorify God in the bond of a sacred covenant. But just like Adam, the people of Israel transgressed his covenant and went after their own counsels. They failed in their test too. First in the desert, after the Exodus, and then later in the land of Canaan. Now Jesus, in becoming incarnated, he stepped into this same pattern, but with a difference. Jesus is the son and image of God who did not fail, who did not transgress, did not go after strange counsels nor strange gods. He kept the covenant. He proved himself to be the faithful prophet, the faithful priest, and the faithful king. And he triumphed, therefore, where both Adam and Israel had failed. Jesus was conscious of the fact that this was his mission, not only to take up the torch that Adam had dropped, but also to take up the mantle of Israel, that is to be the true Israel, to sum up in himself the entire people of God. And he reveals this understanding of his own mission in many places in the New Testament. The apostles reveal this in many places, as well as in the Gospels. As Paul put it in Romans 5, Adam was a type of Christ. And as we saw in 1 Corinthians 15, 
our Lord is identified by Paul as the second man and the last Adam. But let's just see how the Bible reveals that Jesus also saw himself as the true Israel. Now you may recall, if you're familiar with John's Gospel, that in chapter 15, Jesus explicitly calls himself the true vine. Jesus calls himself in John 15, the true vine. That language about being the true vine is a clear statement that Jesus is the true Israel. And he regarded himself as such. For Israel is referred to in the Bible, in the Old Testament, as a vine. A vine that God had planted. In Jeremiah chapter 2 we read, For long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds. But you said, I will not serve. I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? And in Psalm 80, we find, and if you recall, we read this earlier as part of our, as our responsive reading, we found this language. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. So, in calling himself the true vine in John chapter 15, Jesus was explicitly challenging the conventional understanding of Israel. He, he was telling us, is the true Israel when he identified himself as the true vine. Now for our second proof, and again, we only select a few of the many possible proofs that Jesus is, according to the scriptures, the new Israel, the true Israel. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of the prophet Hosea. Hosea 6. Most likely, your Bibles have a heading for this chapter to the effect that the passage concerns national Israel and Judah. And that's because the context so clearly concerns Israel, God's covenant community of the Old Testament. Now first, let's look at verse 7 together of Hosea 6. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. This is what I mentioned before, that both Israel and Adam had failed. They had failed in their commission to love, honor, and serve, and glorify God. Now look with me at verse 2 of this chapter. Hosea 6, 2. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Do you recall how Jesus claimed that the scriptures of the Old Testament insist that the Messiah must suffer and die and be raised again from the dead on the third day? In Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, for instance, our Lord says, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Now did you know, brothers and sisters, that there is no single place in the Old Testament that says that explicitly, that the Anointed One, that the Messiah, 
was to die and to lay in the grave for three days and rise again. Now indeed, Jonah chapter 2 may be a place where Christ is portrayed, and I believe he is, as being in the grave for three days in Sheol, only to rise again. But the only explicit reference in the Old Testament to anyone being raised from the dead on the third day is this place in Hosea 6.2. And as we can see in Hosea 6, it is Israel that hopes in such a resurrection. It is Israel that will rise on the third day, apparently from the dead. For our Lord, this passage has its reference and its fulfillment in him. When he says, in Luke 24 as elsewhere, thus it is written, that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. So if we are going to understand the scriptures as our Lord does, and to interpret them as and him as he teaches us to, then our Lord Jesus is the true Israel. He is the true Israel. He is the true vine. In other words, the resurrection of Christ is the resurrection of Israel of which that prophet spoke. Now this is not to obliterate the corporate reference caught up in this place in Hosea. Certainly our Lord wants us to understand that this place has reference to him. But it still does have reference to his people as well. There is a plural here as well as a singular application. How can that be? As he is Israel, we who are united to him, and only those who are united to him in faith, are likewise true Israel. As he says in John 15, brothers and sisters, pay heed to this. As Christ says in John 15, he not only says, I am the true vine. What does he say next? He says, and you are my branches. And you are my branches. As the tie between a vine and its branches is organic, and as the bond between the head and the body is as well, so is the bond between Christ and his people a living and active one. It is an organic one. Now for a third reason, brothers and sisters, given in the scripture for why Jesus should be thought of as the true Israel. Please turn a few chapters forward in Hosea to chapter 11. Hosea 11 and verse 1. Hosea 11.1 When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, brothers and sisters, in the New Testament, which teaches us how to interpret the Old Testament, we find in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 2, we are told the following. And he rose, referring to Joseph, and he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This, Matthew adds, was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. 
As you can see, Jesus and his apostles are all in agreement. Matthew interprets and applies language in Hosea describing Israel's exodus as being, quote, fulfilled when Joseph and Mary brought Jesus down to and then back out of Egypt. Jesus then, brothers and sisters, according to the scriptures, is true Israel, who sums up in himself the entire people of God. So to recap quickly, Jesus Christ is the new, uh, excuse me, the true vine of John 15. Jesus Christ is the Israel raised on the third day of Hosea 6. And Jesus Christ was the Israel, Matthew says, that was brought out from Egypt. So Mark, returning to our text. Mark, in setting Jesus in another recorded temptation by Satan, he seconds Paul's revelation elsewhere that Jesus is the second Adam. By placing his Lord's testing and trial in the wilderness, the place of Israel's beginnings, Mark echoes other scriptures that reveal Jesus to be a corporate person. A corporate person who sums up in himself the people of God, namely Israel, which is the church. But there is another reason, a more practical reason perhaps, for this temptation of the Lord Jesus Christ. As I said before, there were at least two reasons for this temptation. Even though Jesus could not be successfully tempt, uh, tempted to sin, the first, as we saw, that Jesus was to succeed where both Adam and Israel had failed. That was the first reason for his temptation. Jesus had to be the faithful representative, unlike Adam, the unfaithful representative. And Jesus had to be the faithful people of God, faithful on our behalf, and therefore the true Israel, unlike the faithless people of God that we read about in the Old Testament. Looking at this temptation of our Lord by the evil one, we should also mark three other truths. Take these practical lessons as well, away from this temptation of our Lord. First practical lesson. We learn from this temptation, brothers and sisters, that we can expect to be tempted. For no servant is greater than his master. If he was tempted by the devil, you can be expected to be tempted as well. That's the first practical lesson. The second, resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's a direct quote from the New Testament, the epistle of James. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's a divine promise. As we can see in the parallel accounts of this temptation in the wilderness, Jesus resisted the devil and he fled from him. So expect demonic temptations and know that if you resist, he will flee from you too. Lay hold of that divine promise. That if you resist, God will see to it that the devil will flee from you as well. As we read in 1 Corinthians 10, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. You feel isolated, don't you, when you're tempted? You're all alone. The scripture tells us that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common 
to man. Paul goes on. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Third, lay hold of, make a personal claim upon today's scripture meditation at the top of your bulletins. Because their 40 years of testing in the wilderness typifies his 40 days of testing and trial in the wilderness, it also applies to you. So if this verse in Deuteronomy speaks to you, it should. It speaks to all those who are united to the true vine, the true Israel, by faith. Let's move on now, brothers and sisters, to part two. With the wild beasts. Now first, let's consider this reference to wild beasts. Why was this detail added in Mark? By Mark. This detail is not mentioned by the other evangelists. What does this add to Mark's account of the temptation? This is God's word. Why is this little bit of it in here? Mark, in fact, left out a lot of details. That's what characterizes Mark compared to the other evangelists. Mark left out a lot of details in his account that are found in Matthew and Luke, such as the specific points of temptation employed by Satan and how Jesus countered them by quoting from God's word. You can easily see why Matthew and Luke added those details, why they included those things, but why does Mark add this detail that none of the other evangelists put in their gospel? This detail about Jesus being also with the wild beasts. If you were to consult the commentaries, they offer many uh, explanations. But I think that the following is Mark's reason for including these wild beasts in his account. Mark is continuing to drive home the fact that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah and that the Messiah is God in the flesh. That Jesus of Nazareth is no less than God with us. Please turn with me to Isaiah as we wind down. Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43, verses 16 to 21. Isaiah 43, 16 to 21. This is the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers 
in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. This new thing that Yahweh promises to do, do we not perceive it? Mark, by including this language about the wild beast, he's situating the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ into this divine promise found in the book of the prophet Isaiah. For it is only by virtue of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ that those who thirst for righteousness might partake of living waters in the desert. As Yahweh performs this mighty work, this new thing, we find him incarnated in the wilderness and as prophesied in the presence of wild beasts or by his faithfulness under trial. He overcame the devil, destroying all his works and thereby providing life and living drink to his chosen people. As our Lord says in John's Gospel, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Let us pray. Lord, we pray that you would prosper your word in our hearts and minds, that you would make that word to accomplish the, all those ends for which you sent it out this day in our hearing. And we pray all of this, O Lord, for your glory and for our own good. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.